What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to Nightmare Success in and out Podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares to set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys I was in Leavenworth with. We're going to be talking about life before prison, life in prison, and life out of prison. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that will help you knock down some of the prisons you've built up in your own mind. Folks, today I have a Texan with me, and we haven't had a Texan on the uh, on the podcast, but Ron Slovacek, welcome. So happy to have you on Nightmare Success In and Out. Right. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I got to tell you, Ron, when I was um, coming into Leavenworth, um, you know, you, you, you remember things so vividly. And, you know, I, I was looking around, you know, who in the world looks like they're getting this life right in here? You know, this unfamiliar world. And I always admired you from just the time, the very first time I saw you and kind of saw how you walked and worked around the Leavenworth life. And you just kind of kept and being yourself and kept keeping yourself busy and keeping yourself involved, but you were figuring it out how to live that life. And, and I thought to myself as a newbie, man, I got I to gotta figure this out because there is a way to do this and not be in the abyss over here with a guy that's in the bunk bed that's not making it work. Yeah. So, Ron, what, you know, and you and I were just talking before we got on here. You know, we're two guys, we're white-collar guys, um, you know, at Leavenworth Prison, coming from big cases. I know, you know, we were just talking about your your case went for six years, Um you know, and it was probably covered heavily in the news in Dallas. Uh, man, it had, wow. uh, I think when we uh, we had like thirty six thousand new kids. We tried to get a change of venue because of the uh, how much it was covered in the press for five years. Not because of me necessarily, but because of the other players involved. And, so we did all kinds of studies about how many times we were on TV and on the radio and print. You just you couldn't go a week and not read something about the Well, and I think one of the things that's the most interesting to me, because you know when you when you're in this world and you get indicted and they start stacking, you know if you have four charges they can stack them twenty times and then you end up looking at nine hundred years or whatever it is. You actually are one of the very few people I know because ninety seven percent of the people indicted plea and you went to trial and that takes I don't know what that's called but I know the first word I can think of is grit <laughs> and I mean you did that so of the uh you know 90% 97% of people plea of the three percent that go to trial of those three percent I think the feds have a 80 or 90 or 95 percent conviction rate so yeah. Of all the people that ever enter the federal system, maybe one or two percent are found not guilty yeah. or don't, not that they're guilty or, or, but they're found not guilty or whatever. Or, and, uh, I was kind of aware of those odds. So, but I, 
I, uh, I don't know, it's a long, complex, there's no simple answer, but even to this day, knowing everything that happened, I would, uh, I'd probably still go to trial. Well, I mean, to get, to let the listeners know, you were a, a developer, home builder, and and uh, the the case was, I mean, it, it involved so many things with politicians and all these different people that were in this things, you know, bribes and all these different things that the politicians were involved in. And I think from what you and I were talking about, those people also were serving time as it all went through. Um, it's a lot to live through, isn't it? Oh, it's an incredible lot to live through. I think that uh, the, the politicians that were involved, uh, some of them actually passed away, passed away in prison. Wow. Yep. Uh, the, uh, the, the mayor pro tem, a guy named Don Hill, who was uh, a, a person that I was familiar with, liked, supported. I thought he was uh, uh, the way I knew him, an asset to Dallas and but here he was being charged with accepting bribes, taking bribes from these, from these really high-end developers, multi-family developers. Uh, uh, and other politicians, I think there still, might still be some still in prison serving time. He got really lengthy sentences. Yeah. I was kind of a peripheral person down on the very bottom, happened to know these people, and uh, just got involved in something unknowingly and uh, was charged with something that I did not do. But to prove you didn't do something is really hard. Right. You know, I mean, that's what I learned about our system. You know, so uh, it was a big case, big, big uh, case in Dallas, the largest, uh, they said at the time, public representation city of Dallas. And uh, I was just one of the little guys at the bottom, but well, and you ended up getting seven years, which, you know, I, I got a five-year sentence or three. Um, and, you know, seven years is a big chunk of time. I, I uh, Going back a little bit, Ron, so so did you grow up around the Dallas area as a, as a kid? Yeah, I, I was born and raised 30 miles south of Dallas in a town called Intersection. Lots of family members still live there. Uh, and I left there, went to college, went to uh, East Texas, the SFA, my first year out of high school, ended up moving back to Dallas, and then moved up to Denton, went to the University of North Texas, graduated there in 91, with a degree in political science and anthropology, going to law school, and uh, I had had a family with a child and a wife, and had been going to school full time and working full time, and I decided after I graduated, before I went to law school, I took my, I took my LSAT. I think I got uh, uh, accepted to one or two schools, and I told my dad, "I'm going to take a year off and enjoy life." And he he warned me, he said, "Don't do it. You'll never go back." I said, no, dad, <laughs> I will. Yeah. And uh, he was right. I never went back. I got into construction, but uh, I, I love to work my hands. I love to build things, and I was very good at it. And within a year or two going from a starving student trying to raise a family to making six figures in a year or two, doing something you love, who yeah. wouldn't pass that up? Right. And that kind of was it. So I was, uh, I've been in the, in the Dallas area really all of my life, except for my seven years up in uh, Kansas. 
So, Ron, you had you had early success. Uh, it's so yeah. weird that we've got two political science people on this podcast. <laughs> Were you a political science? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, I was going to be a big trial attorney, and then I got sideways uh, into selling pre-need funerals. So I don't know how I don't know oh, the, I don't know the story yeah. how you get there, but I love yeah I love politics, love political science, love the whole deal. But um, I don't think they usually let two political science people on a podcast, but political science people can talk. That's for sure. Hey, don't get, don't get me started. <laughs> so, so Ron, you got early success yeah. and you've got a family. Uh, and I think if I remember, did you have two or three kids? Three, three kids, two boys and a girl. Yeah. Two, two boys and a girl. I got three kids. I got three girls. Yeah. I, I didn't figure I out. The, I, I didn't figure out the boy thing, but so, <laughs> so Walk me through how you're growing in the in the uh, in the Dallas region as a developer builder, and life is good, right? Yep. Making money, doing what you like doing. Uh, lead me into how in the world did this all happen to Ron Slovacek? I tell you what, Brett, it is a um, it's a multifaceted story. And I, I know we don't have, I could talk about it for a week, but I'm going to give you the abbreviated version. Okay. Uh, I was definitely very successful early on, uh, but I worked at it. I started by swinging a hammer. Yep. Started a framing business, ended up having builders waiting, pouring slabs and waiting for me to get there because I was such a good business person to them, not just a carpenter, but I did what I said I was going to do. And, and, uh, you were into really services, you were into service and relationships, service relationships, yep. no matter what the piece of paper said, my word, my bond, and I did it for him. Yep. And I tried to make it good. And so I had, uh, some of my builders said, you know what, you should, you should try building yourself. So I thought, well, that's a good idea. So I'm in my twenties and I thought, well, I'm going to buy some lots and build some houses. Well, I went and bought lots for cash. I just had a lot of cash. And started building houses and uh, ended up my first house I built was a overbuilt the neighborhood. Ended up being a incredible sensitive learning experience. I learned a <laughs> lot from that. What do they say about uh, success though? There's failures along the way. You just got to learn from so, it. <laughs> you know, for sure. I'll tell you what. I have, uh, every time you fail, if you learn from it, if you learn from it, if you go back, not to criticize yourself, but to say, what should I have done? What did right. I miss? can I do better? And, uh, and you wiser. Take, you do that and it'll, it'll springboard you to the next level Yep. because you gain knowledge. Big and I had a lot of good, I had a lot of good teachers along the way too, older, uh, uh developers and builders that kind of mentored me, but that kind of got me into that. But anyway, you asked me how well, I got no, Ron, how I, uh, Ron, go back to that. Cause I think that's a big tip for, for listeners. They're just talking about building a business did you seek those guys out that that you uh that were mentors that you saw them getting it right and you thought maybe i need to talk to them you know what they i didn't seek them out it's almost like they sought me okay uh a lot of them were uh, a couple of the guys were previous developers who were kind of semi-retired yep who were looking for a young gun to come in there and learn from them yep. and help it put their own money at work again and be involved on the peripheral sure. but not doing the day-to-day stuff. Sure. And these were good guys. I tell you what, one of them, my, one of my first early, actually it was my 
our first early partner helped me put together about a 20 acre land purchase back in about, I don't know, 2000, no, back, back, like 94, 94, 95. His name was Kirby Albright. He was in his 70s when I met him. He passed away a few years ago while I, while I was in prison, but he taught me a lot of things. He's a good developer. He developed a lot of stuff outside of, of, uh, of Rockwall, but um, I think I didn't seek them, but they saw the potential in me. Right. And said, hey, let's just, this guy looks like he wants to learn. Yeah. But that's kind of always how I've been, even when I started framing. Yeah. Uh, when I started working for someone I had to learn, I I went to them, I want to learn. Give me the plans. Let me teach you how to read them. You know, you got to look for that. So I think uh, I come across uh, some people that I hire to do work. They don't have um, this desire to learn. Right. They think it's going to naturally come just because I'm there. But you actually have to reach out and grab it. You have to reach out and ask for it. Yep. And you got to do it. And you got to find good people. So mentors, you're right. Very critical that you can learn from them. And even today, I'm, I'm trying to mentor my children. That's yeah. my son. I've got a son who wants to start up in the business. Yeah. I've got a nephew that wants to kind of stay in the business. So I try to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that is just one thing that someone can learn, especially if they face the challenge of coming out of prison and having to start life again. Yeah, living yeah. life in reverse, basically. Yeah, is is still use some of those uh, mentors you used in the past. Because normally a good mentor, you're going to get to know, they're going to learn to trust you, and you're going to trust them. They're going to see who you are regardless. Yeah. Make mistakes, you don't make mistakes, and they're going to, they're going to want to pick it back up. Totally agree. I, I think that's a, that's good information. So anyway, that was kind of a, I, I was heading down the direction of even how this happened. But, yeah. Uh, we got sidetracked. No, no, and but that's good information. And so... I guess the good question here is then, when did you know things were going sideways? Well, I was really, uh, my business was doing very well. I had, uh, uh, in the real estate business, we, uh, what I was doing was finding properties. I would bring in groups of investors. Uh, we had purchased a property. I would uh, own, uh, we actually created a limited partnership with some other type of ownership vehicle. I would uh, manage the property, be the general partner, the general manager, and uh, and I had multiple deals going. Very large projects going around Texas. And uh, even though I was very uh, economically successful, big house, nice cars, nice family, great vacations, private school, all those things, mm-hmm. I felt a little uh, incomplete or like I, I wasn't giving back. I'm in about my mid-30s and something's kind of bothering me in the back of my head because I look around at my friends, they're all, they all look like me. You know okay. what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't have a very uh, diverse well, I mean, uh, Ron, nobody's got hair like you, though. I mean, if it, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at Ron on the Zoom. Ron's got the. If, I'll put a picture up of him when I when I put this out on uh, social media. But he's got the Brad Pitt flow. You know, that's what every guy wants the the Brad Pitt flow. So he's got that. So no, not everybody looks like hey, Ron. Good, good, good genes, all it is good genes. I'm sorry, Ron. Uh, anyway, so. Story. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I you know looking around, I'm 
thinking in my uh, my my parents have always been very giving people. My father was a deacon in the Catholic Church. Okay. And very uh, community focused person, always giving out. I have five brothers and two sisters. He raised typical Catholic family, large family. We were very involved in our community. I saw my father spending his nights and weekends studying to get his uh, doctorate in, in, in theology, but then also studying to uh, become a deacon. And then he took that and he helped start a church in a small town outside of my hometown. Very involved outreach, he was like, for years. And were you, Ron, involved like that? I, yeah, I was. Okay. He had us involved when I was a youngster. Okay. When, when I was under his tutelage, back right. when I was living at home. Okay. But as a young adult, I was more concerned about uh, raising a family, making money, earning sure. a living, and doing all that. So I wasn't very involved. So I decided it's time for me to get involved. Okay. It's time to take my talent, uh, how to put together people, how to put together different uh, interest yep. from a, uh, a building perspective, a housing perspective, and see if I can help communities. And what better communities to, to focus on than Dallas? Even though I've never been lived in Dallas, never been a, re- a resident of Dallas, my family has. So wow. I thought, well, I'm going to focus on Dallas. I met some um, uh, some of the people involved in this case early on. Uh, one was a young uh, African-American lady who wanted to be a developer as well. Speaking of mentoring, so she, I decided I'm going to help mentor her and bring it up through this and kind of help her out. Well, she ended up being one of the people in the cases. She ended up pleading out and, and actually getting no jail time. And good for her. Mm-hmm. She had a young family. But anyway, this is this is kind of how I got involved. Okay. I needed to get involved in the minority community. So it's low housing, low, low income housing, right? Low-income housing, yeah. reach out there to try to put some, not even low-income housing, but just uh, trying to, to help the blighted neighborhood. Gotcha. Bringing real commercial development. Okay. Trying to use uh, my contacts, my investor money, my bank contacts, all of these things, and try to bring them community to bring it up. Well, there's a saying, no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> and... Unfortunately, some of the people I was involved in had other ideas in mind, okay. and uh, they used my own talent. I lost a lot of money in these things. I mean, I, I, I uh, uh, was duped by some of them. Probably should have seen it earlier, and I did, but I'm a very trusting individual. I think one thing I've learned as a business person is, uh, I, since then, is, uh, is uh, trust people, give them the benefit of the doubt, but, but verify. Yeah. And that's probably something I didn't practice back then. But that's kind of how it got me into it. I got involved trying to be a health in Dallas, and uh, I had there was no financial incentive for me to do it. I had. Uh, you thought you were giving back as, as as your dad had been working, and and you felt yeah. like you 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 had done well, and you wanted to give back into the community because you knew how to build, and you wanted to create the relationships to do that. Gotcha. Yeah, and I wanted to do it more than just with writing a check. I wanted to. Be involved. To be involved, to mentor, to to do something that would make my father even proud. Yeah. And my father was, uh, uh, at this time in my life, was uh, battling cancer, uh, heart disease, all these things. He, he ended up passing away at 63 before I went to trial. He 
was a, a resource for me that I, I missed dearly at that. But, mm. and, uh, so all during this time, and I think that's part of it. Well, a lot of it sounds like it was your motivation, Ron, to be showing his eyes. I can't, I'm not just a successful guy that can develop and build these, you know, nice developments over here in the neighborhood. I'm going to give back and and give to people in the community and and mentor into that. I I get that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of it. And then it it kind of went from there. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the people that were involved in this, I knew for a few months and it cost me not just the seven years I served in prison, right? but the five years. Because when they busted the door down, if you go back and look at the Dallas Morning News, yeah. all the, you know, they're plastering my picture. They're saying bad things about me. Yeah. I had the, uh, the prosecutors and, the, and compared me to a, uh, a, a leader of a drug cartel. Right. I was just blown away, and just a few months prior to that, you know, I was, I served on, uh, in, in my hometown board, the development boards here, I had state representatives soliciting me to serve on state boards in some capacity, so I went from this citizen to this in a matter of a few months. Well, and what you find out, Ron, in that is that, that heavy narrative that comes from an all full court press from the media, and then you weigh the elephant on top of that with the government, you can't press against that narrative. You're, you're, you're suffocated at the bottom of that. You know what, Brent, those are, uh, I would not have, before 2005, you could have said that to me, and I just said, no. The government, prosecutors, these guys are interested in the truth. They're interested in fairness. They want it to come about, and if people did wrong, then they want them to be punished, but but we're going to find the truth. I did not find that to be the case. Right. And I think there's one thing I think that's really broken in the system, and I don't know how it'll ever get tweaked, but there is a problem that exists with convictions get promotions, and the, the missing link in that is understanding what is actually the case. And it, was there wrong done? Uh, were there people that uh, were innocent or or guilty? But those cases are not, they're not massaged that way. It's about convictions. And, you, you know, you put them up and, and you tack them on a wall so that you can get a judgeship or you get the promotion within the office or whatever the case is. I'm not sure how that gets fixed, but it is you part know, of the system that's broken. I, I agree with you. I, uh, it's kind of like, you're incentivizing not justice. You're incentivizing conviction. Convictions right. isn't justice. It's not the same. You know, I, I ran that uh, when I was, I started in construction, and then I had multiple subdivisions. I had VPs of construction, VPs of sales and marketing. I had a big staff, uh, lots of salespeople, lots of sales managers. And I used to sit down for a while. I, was, I did my own sales management and sales training for my salespeople sitting in our model homes around the Metroplex. And this is another piece of advice. I'll go back to mentoring. I learned from one of my clients long, long ago, and I'll say it in a second. But anyway, I used to sit down with my salespeople and, and uh, try to create and work with them what kind of incentive there was for them. 
So in real estate, uh, I don't, as a, as a builder, the first house you sell, if I want you to sell three houses in a month, the first house you sell is okay. The second one's better. The third one is really what I'm looking for. The first one is gravy. So I'm going to pay you more for the fourth one and pay myself less to get there. Right. And I think that's a good motivation. So I don't know if it's an economic motivation to be brought back into the justice department for this, but there's definitely, you know, if your goal is justice, then it shouldn't be conviction. Right. That's not the same thing. Yep. But the point I was going to make is uh, uh, regarding incentives. I had another mentor, client of mine, uh, who is a, uh, I'm not going to mention his name, but uh, uh, he owns a sports team. I built a house from a long time ago. And he told me, he said, Ron, he said, you are my favorite day of the week is. He said, it's the day I pay out bonuses. He said, and the bigger they are, the better. Because that means those guys are working hard. I'm paying them more. Means I'm, my business is doing better. Right. So I'm not afraid of doing that. You know, you pay people for, for success. Right. So I've never had an issue with that. No, and, and, anyway, that's, and, that's, and that, that, is, that builds success. And, and it also builds people when people are making money in your business, it gives you rock stars to promote that. Hey, if you do what Ron's doing, look at Ron and you can see yourself layer and step up to that. You need that. And you need to pay people to be able to do that so that they advertise for you to, to show that the success can happen. So Ron, I, I want to go to the, the part where you go in and you just, you decide that you're going to, go to trial and I, I know all the preparation has to go into these trials, but I want to fast forward to when, when everything got said and done and you knew that the jury was, cause I never had this experience and you're sitting there looking at the jury. Did you have a feel for how things were going and what they well, were going to come back with? I'll tell you what, I think it's interesting. You could go back and read the transcript of my trials. You can see the news covers, all of that. I was carved out and had my own trial for the rest of the season because uh, I had a very good, I had a very good, strong, very strong case, you know. And because I was just going to stand on the truth and let the chips fall where they may. So my trial lasted, I can't remember, four or five or six days. The jury was out as long as my trial. Okay. The general rule of thumb is for every day of trial, it's an hour of jury time. Yep, I've heard in that. Five hours, in five or six hours, they should have decided. It took them a week or so. Wow. So I think there were people in there fighting for me. What were those days like? You know what? Uh, a lot of prayer and just a lot of asking God just for strength to deal with whatever comes. And, I, and a lot of consoling my family members and just keeping them, you know, whatever happens, going to happen. But it was, uh, it was stressful. So the, uh, my attorney called me and he says, uh, the jury's got a, a decision. Come on down. So we did. And he took me aside and he said, uh, this is a very, uh, uh Mike Gibson was his name, my attorney. Pretty well, very well respected law firm. He said, I've never had a judge do this in my 30 or 40 or 50 years experience, whatever he said. But she told us what the verdict is so that we can share it with you. 
before you walk into that courtroom. Wow. And and uh, he told me he can be guilty on all, all three counts. And uh, my, uh, you know, he, he kind of took it in stride. So walking into the courtroom was the first time I heard that. He, the judge, uh, uh, told my attorney, he told me outside the courtroom when he walked in 10 minutes later and came out. So it was devastating to my family. Uh, how, old were, how old were your kids at the time? Ooh, my youngest daughter was, was uh, seven. Okay. 12 and 17. Okay. Well, well, I mean, the, so you, in the, in the jury trial, you get the, you get the verdict. Uh, how long did you have to wait for sentencing? Uh, I think it was a couple of months. Okay. They do a pre-sentencing report, all right. of that stuff, you know, and, uh, I, uh, did they put in your report get, that you qual? they were going to recommend you for RDAP? No. Okay. Here's an interesting aside, Brent, that I want to—I just want to bring up how kind of messed up our our justice system is. You know, I did seven years in prison, and I've never been in a set of handcuffs. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I when they did the perp walk with me, right? And I had to go to the to, to the judge, and I remember uh, walking in there with my attorneys, one on each side, walking in, and this elevator opening up. And one of the gentlemen that's in the case, a young African-American, it opens up, and there's these two FBI agents who I recognize. He's cuffed up, and they walk him out. He's in a suit, and he's cuffed, they walk him out, they uncuff him. And I'm thinking, well, they're about to cuff me up and take me out. And they just open the door up and said, come in, Mr. Slobacek. I just, I'm, I'm appalled at the need of our justice system to lock someone up for seven years and never had been in, in handcuffs ever. Right. You sure I mean, really? So anyway, I'm I kind of, no, I think, I think that's part the memory there, but no, I, I think that's uh, interesting because, you know, usually um, when you put people away bef- behind a fence and with the bob wire and everything, it's, it's so that they don't harm others. Um, and so I've always thought there's other ways within the justice system. If you feel like you're going to punish somebody that hasn't harmed somebody, there's probably other ways to do that. They can actually benefit both sides. You um, know, I agree with you. I mean, before, during my pre-sentence report, my attorneys and I had an idea, you know, found guilty. Well, Ron, maybe we can ask the judge for, you know, community service or something. Yeah, she heard your case. He's heard all these things. So I spent a month or two contacting uh, all of the uh, nonprofits in the Denton area, lining up five, ten, fifteen thousand hours of community service I could do for them. Well, I mean, Ron, can you imagine what benefit you would have been to somebody oh, in community service that could build and, and had the knowledge of how to develop hey. and, and help the communities you were actually uh, after to, to help anyway? Uh, I mean, I'm just saying there's just, there's, there's a lot that could be thought about in that arena. I I took, they took seven years of a productive person. I could have solved the homeless problem in Denton. Yeah. 
and tackled it in Dallas, you know, yeah. for nothing. Right. It cost him nothing. Right. So, anyway, well, so that kind of was uh, the judge told my attorney. My attorney told me, and that was it. We walked in. But here's what's funny. So we went through a, a couple of months of pre-sentence report, right? Because we were going to, my, my attorneys were going to ask the judge for community service. Yeah. 10,000 hours or 50 or something. Whatever. You know, something yeah. big. Yeah. And uh, that was a no-go. But on the day of sentencing, this is how really messed up our, our system is. You know, they give you a point when you're pre-sentencing. They take all of this. Well, my, my points were 130 or 140. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of points. There's a lot of points. And predominantly uh, because of the finances involved. Right. My family shows up for sentencing. I had a room full. I had both sides of a courtroom, federal courtroom, packed. Um, I had letters. The judge said, he goes, normally we get a form letter in. I had hundreds of letters, all handwritten, all no form letter sent in supporting me. I had people talking. I mean, all these things happening. Uh, sentencing comes up. We go in. My family's in there. Well, the judge has a, has one sentencing to happen before us. And she says, we're going to take care of this matter. So the, uh, the, uh, uh, the bailiffs or the whoever's in there, they walk in this guy with a jumpsuit on and he's handcuffed up. He's holding him. Set him down. The judge starts going through. This guy's in there for like third, his third uh, uh, time to be there for aggravated robbery or bank robbery, armed or something incredible. He's getting a violent, violent crime. A violent crime, and he's getting violent. Won't won't stand up for the judge. He's fighting, yelling. These uh, uh, the marshals are having to hold him and restrain him. Yeah. My family is witnessing all of this. His point levels were less than mine. Mm-hmm. The judge, it was got so bad, the judge halted all proceedings, said, Mr. Slovacek, it looks like this is all your family is here. I'm going to ask all of y'all to leave the courtroom so we can deal with this. That's what happened. Wow. But I came to find out this guy, a three-time armed robber, had a lower point level, and a guy who has been a pillar in his community. It, it, it really blows you away. And, you know, th- those are the things that you look at in, in, in our, you know, and you, you look at the United States of America, which, you know, is, is uh, you know, it's got the Constitution and the democracy and everything. But the criminal justice system, not too many people know about. Because unless you're entwined and you've, you get into the unlucky lottery of getting into that pool. You don't know because everything is told to you about how it works. I mean, we're both political science majors and, and, you know, constitutional law and all that. But when you get into it, man, man, and there's nothing like saying, I learned, I, I was that guy. I was that guy. Just didn't think about it. Hey, they're doing a good job. They're trying to be, uh, they're seeking truth and justice. Yeah. And did I learn something? And to me, and it, it's coming out, if you read some of the books out, with some of the people who have been wrongly convicted for judicial misconduct. Yeah. I, I pursued that and was, uh, you know, I, I thought there was some, some misconduct. 
agents involved. Sure. Uh, and it was shut down by the system. Did you, in your five or six years of, of leading up to this, did you get an opportunity to talk to FBI agents, to U.S. attorneys? I did. I did. I had nothing to hide. They said, hey, uh, you might have some inspiration to help us. I said, you can look at everything I've done, seen. I have nothing to hide. This is it. I did. Yeah. And they used those against me. Yeah. Well, Rod, tell me about it comes down to sentencing day. And you think you've done all the hard work to show that you could be a help to society, and they come down and the and the judge tells you he's going to throw you seven years. What what are you thinking? What are you feeling at that point? Well, I was not expecting it. My attorney early on, you know, they weigh. You know, you ask them, hey, if we go to trial, what do you think is going to happen? You know, well, you're the low you're the low man on the totem pole blah, 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 maybe you're looking at 36 months, 40 months, something like that, at the high end if you're found guilty. You're not really who they're after. You just happen to be a peripheral. So I weigh that in my whole decision-making, too. Now, if they had told me originally, well, if you go to trial, you're going to face, you're going to do 100 years. What I plan, I don't know. I still don't know the answer to that. Right. I'm still thinking I would still not plead because I believe that yeah. truth and fairness happens. So I'm sitting there thinking, you know, something between 24 and 36 months is coming my way, which is something, you know, you can plan for it. Don't have to lose. I mean, one, another thing about the judicial system is you got to be very poor or very rich. Mm-hmm. You're right there in the middle. It takes everything from you. Yep. My, it took everything. It drained our account. I lost business. Yeah. Not only in the five years that it took, you try to keep the business going, you lose business. So um, I'm thinking it's going to be 24, 36 months, mm-hmm. something like that. So we can weather it. We can financially plan for that. And when she hit 84 months, it had to take your breath I, away. I all I could see was, you know, uh, my children and how they're going to change. I'm not going to be there. And, yeah, uh, it was. Uh, it was oh, I can't imagine. I mean, and at the ages your kids were at the time of that, and that's of course that floods your mind immediately because you know seven years is in that time period when your kids were those ages. Uh, so when you were sentenced, how long did you have? Well, first of all, you, you didn't go to a place close to home. That had to be a surprise. That's a whole other story. So, you know, when I had about, I think, two or three months from sentencing to report date. The first report date, I asked to get extended because I needed to have knee surgery. Okay. I had had damage to my knee, and I needed opportunity. If I was going to be gone, I needed to prepare before I went in. So I did, and she granted that. So if you ask me the date I report, I can't tell you. There are some dates in my head I just kind of block out. But I had that much time. I had some time to kind of get affairs in order. 
you never have enough time. I mean, mm-hmm. you just, you never have enough time. And uh, I can remember the exact, I can remember in vivid detail what that day was like. I had some family members drive me. When they told me, when my attorney told me I was going to Leavenworth, Kansas, I was like, what the? And I how, how many hours? Out. How many hours drive is that from uh, Dallas area? I mean, it's got to be like fourteen, 10, twelve, hours. thirteen. Yeah, it's ten or twelve or thirteen. Yeah. I mean, and it was—it's not a drive that you can make. No, easily. Right. And uh, it was another. Even though the judge had ordered that I be, uh, you know, served by sentence close to home. Yeah. The prosecutor's office, the, the prosecutor's office put in something, uh, I can't remember the exact verbiage, but it said, remove him from his sphere of influence. Wow. And I thought that the entire seven years I was gone to get moved closer, and they fought it every time. There's a whole other story why, and that's... Uh, well, I got to tell you, Ron, that that is another thing that I think, again, we're talking about the justice system. They knew you had a wife. They knew you had kids. They knew it would be better. I mean, you had a long sentence. It, it would obviously be better for these people to be able to visit you closer to home. And the only thing that could do was, you know, pull the rubber band of of the family unit and to me that it's just as crazy as the whole visiting system in prison where they've got the crazy point system and they don't really want you to visit that long and people will double count your points and people will show up and they say you don't have enough points all those things are are really set up to move you away from your family for the ultimate punishment that you don't have anything because if you have family they would really kind of like you not to have that either and, and for you to go from Dallas to be put in Leavenworth, knowing that you have a family that's supporting you and all these people that want to be and see you and visit you and, and send you that far away, that's punishment on top of the seven years. You can't, there's no other way to look at that. No, there's no other way. I'll tell you what, I had, there was a prison camp that was uh, 20 minutes away from most of my brothers and sisters where they live, Yeah. 30 minutes away from where my mother lived, 45 minutes away from where my ex-wife and my children live. Yeah. I could have been in, I could have been there and at least maintain those ties. It might even save my marriage. I mean, uh, yeah. that prison cost me, it cost me a family, not just time, but it cost me, uh, uh, my wife who I've been married to for 25 years. Yeah. And it was, a, as it was more punishment on her and on them than it was on me. Sure. It's devastating. And, and, and I think that's, uh, I, I think, I don't know. I, I don't know why, but it seems like maybe there's some, uh, I don't know, policy makers, people who create these policies really don't understand reform or what it takes to, if you're trying to create a, a citizen that's going to come back out there and respect society and respect people, they're definitely not doing it that way. No. I, I didn't go, I, I didn't have to go to prison to learn how to be a good citizen. 
Right. I was one well before I went in. Right. You know. So fast forward to me, Ron, you get the Leavenworth letter. It's way away from home. You pull up to Leavenworth. You stand at that gate. You stand at that gate. Walk me through your thoughts. You know, and you did it. I mean, did, did you, uh, when you got there, did you have to stand out that gate and wait right outside the big place? Yeah. So I'm sitting there standing and, uh, my siblings, I had, uh, some of my brothers and sisters drove me up there. I couldn't, uh, didn't want to put my, uh, my wife at the time through that. that was too much for her. So they drove me up there, dropped me off and exiting that car and walking up to that tower uh, it was kind of surreal I could I knew I was experiencing it but it was almost out of body I can almost see it better looking at myself above than through my eyes and and just walking up to that gate and letting them know hey uh I'm turning yourself in like it's you're like you're waiting for an order of Jack in the Box or something. Right. It's kind of how they looked at it. And then from that point, just a, a demoralizing experience. I mean, just. And I don't know that it really hit me at that point. What seven years is going to be like, because I honestly, in my head, was thinking they've made a mistake. I've got good attorneys, the justice system. Somebody's going to come up and say, "Now nah, you're right. You made a mistake." Uh, you know, because I, I, I play back in my head the arguments the prosecutors are making about things that were said or not said. I'm like, that's crazy. That's not. That's not it at all. But when they compared me to the leader of a drug cartel, right. Anyway, it was kind of surreal. So that first experience is almost like a part of me, but well, I mean, when, and and you know, there there is no more humbling experience than walking through that that gate, and then the other gate slams, and then you go into the bowels of that very ugly bottom basement prison, and and you realize at that time. And it's almost like the freedom was shedding off of you as you were walking through that sidewalk, and you feel it off. You like you feel it falling away from you, just like they take your clothes. You feel that falling away. Exactly, and they kind of it's a, it's it's prisonizing you. They give you they take your clothes and they give you the ugly clothes, and you know you you everything is then you know what do I do next? I'm not going to tell you what happens next. I'm gonna you're gonna find out when I tell you, and you. Those are the things that your mind is is like a computer. It's taking all this in. So as you go down to the camp, um, what's it like when you, you know, Ron's entered prison? You know, I was one of the lucky ones. I guess I got there early enough that I didn't have to stay in the shoe there. Okay. Uh, Swanson. Wonderful, man. And yeah. I mean that sarcastically. <laughs> he he was like the devil. He was like the devil. He was. Uh, he I only spent about maybe two or three hours there. 
Yeah, we had a town driver. I can't, I, you know, I could probably think of the name of the town driver that was driving the van with him in it that picked me up and brought me back. And then when I finally did it, Hey, Ron, did it kind of freak you out that the people that were driving were the prisoners? <laughs> I mean, that's like an eye-opening experience. Everything that's oh, happening, the prisoners are doing. And you know what? What's funny is, two years later, I'm driving my own vehicle outside the prison. Right. Right. In prison. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah, but it was, uh, I'll tell you what, but when, they, when they drove me out to the camp, I really had no idea what to expect. And, you know, walk in. But the first thing I'm thinking is I got to get me a shame. I can't trust anybody. Everybody's out to get me. I'm just thinking about all these prison movies I've seen sure. and Paranoid. don't trust anybody. Yeah. And I tell you what, there is a fraction, only a fraction of truth to that. Right. Most of the people you came across would do anything to help you out. Yep. You know? Is that kind of what you, how you kind of, it really was. It, I, 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 um, you know, I think I always tell people that your mind always makes things out much worse than they really are, even prison. And I was, I was shocked within the first hour of how many people were helping me. You know, I, uh, Roma was my first bunkie and, and, really? yeah. and, and he, he, he immediately, was showing me what to do. He was cleaning my locker so we could put my stuff in. And he leads me over to Clark and he says, Hey, he's one of you. And he's it was, one of you. Yeah. It, but it was, it was one of those things, Ron, where within an hour I was like, Oh, okay. These people, they're all getting by and helping and doing. And I'm like, okay, I, I'm going to be, uh, and I remember making the phone call to my, my wife and kids uh, shortly after that. And I said, I'm going to be okay. Don't worry about me. I got this. But Ron, I want to know, because in your mind, I think you were probably forked in, in how you were thinking because yeah. one, one part of you, you knew you had a seven year sentence. The other part of you was thinking, I'm going to get out of this because I'm appealing. What, what were your strategies of how you were tackling in that environment? You know, I focused, uh, one, I did the best I could to keep communication with my my uh, wife at the time and my kids and my family. I tell you what, I had uh, uh, my siblings, my mother, uh, and my kids. They all and my wife at that time. I mean, it's very supportive. You're gonna get through this. We're gonna continue to fight. Uh, you know, they had uh, all of my funds had been drained. Uh, really dwindled down and I had people coming forward to help me with my legal expenses, all these things. So my focus really that first few months and years was uh, try to maintain time, keep the communication up with my kids, try to manage, if I could, what's happening on the outside. I soon learned there was nothing you could do to help on the outside. Yeah, I mean, nothing. And so I focused on on my appeals and on um, the issues I saw with with the trial and the evidence and all these things. And uh, and then I also 
trying to find something uh, useful, something uh, that I could give back even inside prison, which is why my first job there was uh, in the education department. Yeah. I, I helped uh, inmates get their GED. I taught them parenting classes. I taught them economics classes. I taught them, you know, I, I was trying to, I guess, still feed that need I had don't you think, Ron, that, that, and I believe in that, I think one of those strategies in prison, I know it's one that I lived by, was is don't quit being you because if you quit being you, you slip down a slippery slope. And I think one of the things I really admired about how you did your time, you did work in education. Uh, I remember you working uh, the garden, which was the hardest job on the campus. Um, you know, I, I – I remember how you stayed in your lane, but stayed focused. And, you know, whether you're in prison or out of prison, keeping your mind active so it doesn't get stale, I think is a big thing. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's right. I like what you said. Don't lose yourself. And I, I thank God that he had, I, I, I don't know if he prepared me or what he did, but he kind of, whether I really directly thought about it, I knew that I was going to continue to try to be who I was. And, uh, and, uh, and that, they didn't take that part of me away. They didn't take that. They didn't take your brain. How, how often did you see your family because you were so far away? Uh, you know what? Early on. Because I remember uh, seeing you in the visiting room from time to time because Julie would drive yeah. her from St. Louis. Well, my marriage kind of fell apart in the first year. My wife, my ex-wife now, uh, she tried hard to make it work. To make it work. But I tell you what, I mean, being that far away, limited telephones, limited all these things. Yeah. And uh, it was a struggle. She came several times that first year, and then again, I don't, I don't blame her. It's just, it's that she saw seven years of trying to raise kids and do it on her own, and it just, it, it, it was bad, it was yeah. bad for her. But I had brothers and sisters, and my mother. I would, you know, a month wouldn't go by that I would not have visited. Now, if I had been in Dallas. It had been every weekend. Sure. Somebody there. Yeah. I had friends come to see me, but it was it was a struggle. And I, I think uh, being that far away from when it was costly at the time. Yeah. And you never knew what you're gonna get with the visiting center. Yeah. You know? It was always a mess at the visiting center. Uh, and and speaking of that, Ron, I, I prison's a tough place to live. How did you handle a hard day in prison. What was? How did you cope? What was your? What What did you do? You know, I looked for someone else I could talk to and help them. Okay. You know, there was always someone there in need of a shoulder or a ear or something, and uh, I was very involved in music. Yep. I remember that. All, yeah, we put together some great Oh, programs. you guys are good. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, I wish I had some recordings of what we did. Yeah. Yeah, 
But I just I did that. I just stay involved in the chapel, and I think that linked me. Uh, if I was having a bad day, I know there was somebody having a worse day. Yeah. And I just I I just I think that's what helps when you when you're feeling bad. Help somebody. I like that. So when you you went through all that time and you you figured out all these strategies of of getting through your time and you had a lot of different type of jobs and helping people along the way. Uh, in fact, you and I worked for a little while on the Rosa Grounds before I went to the, the Leavenworth uh, Golf Course, Fort Leavenworth Golf Course. Uh, that was a good job you had, by the way. That guy really liked you. He's letting you just yeah. basically run the Rosa and Grounds world. Dude, I, I was doing a six-figure job for that guy for 22 <laughs> cents an hour. Exactly. I love it. I mean, uh, you know, it's funny, and I was telling somebody about this the other day. I had a key to an office that even the civilian employees couldn't come into. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And my boss trusted me more than he trusted them. Exactly. That's what's so ironic. So – as you got close, because seven years is a long time. As you got closer, realizing that, because I, you know, I had five years served three, and I know that there were things I started thinking about as I was getting close to the door. Ron, what was your time like when you started realizing I'm getting back into society? Freedom's going to be something I can see. I can at the end of the tunnel. There's a light coming out. Well. I mean, probably, if I was being honest, the, the, the number one thing that was on my mind was try to save my family. Yeah. Try to, uh, my wife had filed for divorce within a year, uh, maybe a little after a year that I got. But it had taken three, four, five years. And the entire time, I really was trying to, to not push her in position, but just say, hey, this is going to end. You know. So I think what I was thinking about is I've gonna, I'm a very family-oriented person. I mean, it's kind of how I was raised. But what can I do to, to, to salvage Yeah, uh, put it back to family? Unit? Yeah. I really, I wasn't worried about uh, earning a living. Yeah. I really wasn't. Uh, because I can always do things with my hands. Right. At least I could, you know, easily make a manual labor living easily because I had a really good yeah. basic college. Now, it wouldn't have been the living that we had before I went to prison, right. you know, but I wasn't worried about that. So uh, I was really just worried about my, my children, how they were. They didn't, I mean, my, uh, my youngest uh, daughter of seven, I got out luckily in time to see her graduate high school. Wow. I missed my oldest son's college graduation. I missed my middle son's high school graduation. Right. And you don't get that back. No, you, you don't, Those you are don't once in a back. lifetime moments. They're once in a lifetime. So really what I was thinking about is, is creating an environment, creating an opportunity to salvage the family. When I say salvage the family, the, the, my ex-wife and yeah. my kids. Put it all I back together. Yeah. And uh, that was my focus. And, yeah. you know, I tried and, and, and it didn't work. And that's okay. Life's good. My kids are good. Yeah. I focused on, on trying to get the best time back with them, you know. 
that, that really was it. I wasn't worried about I wasn't worried about jobs and money. I just God gave me a lot of gifts and those kind of things didn't didn't work. Tell me the day you walked out. Oh my God. What's that? So for? you know? Seven I years. Know, I don't know if anybody else maybe maybe you experienced the same. But when I went into prison, all I kept thinking was they've made a mistake. They've made a mistake that I'm not supposed to be here. Kind of like that guy in Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> exactly, the first night. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, of course, I wasn't walling around and crying. No, of course not. Right. I really thought that. <laughs> and when I when I left, yeah, I kept looking over my shoulder, thinking they made a mistake. They made a mistake. I'm not supposed to be leaving. Exactly. They're gonna come take me back. Yep. I I. Uh, isn't that oh, crazy? Isn't that crazy that. though that your mind thinks that? Why are they like? Something's gonna happen. Did you? Did you? Absolutely. And I knew my family was out in the parking lot, and I was scared to death. Somebody's gonna grab me and said they 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 made a mistake. There was some kind of. They're pulling me back in. Brent, that that sucks me, back in. No, that that makes me feel better about it because uh, I'm telling you, the entire trip back. My family, I was like shaking. Mm-hmm. They had to console me and hold me. I was just like, they're going to they're gonna take me back. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I still have nightmares about that. Yeah. You know? I do. It, it is something, Ron, on how your mind you know, adjust to things. And then you've got a little bit of PTSD on those type of things. But I, I, I mean, you and I had the exact same feeling. And, and when they call you up there and you've been there, I, you know, I, you were there for seven years, I was there for three. And then one day they just say, you can walk out that door. Bye. And you're like, Whoa, what? I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's, it, it really is crazy. It is crazy. It's crazy. You know, well, well, Rod, tell me, so you get back into life and you, you and I share a little bit while, while we were, before we got on, give, give everybody a little bit of taste of what life's like with Ron and Dallas or Denton now and, and what, how you, how you feel about things. And I tell you what, it, it really is good. I wake up, I'm saying every morning, I don't care what the weather's like. Uh, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. For some reason I got some kind of, uh, I've got you. Something happened with my Zoom thing here. I can hear you. Whoa. I can hear you and see you. Oh, really? I can't see you for some reason. Okay. Man. Am I gone? You're gone. Well, you can keep talking because I can see and hear you. Okay. Well, uh, I'll keep talking. I All can't right. see it. But um, I, I, I tell you, I just wake up every morning. It doesn't matter what the weather's like. And I really just enjoy waking up. And and I've got uh, uh, just a real appreciation for for life and people. Yeah. And uh, you know, I tell you what, God gave me a lot of blessings in my life, and He kept my children safe and healthy, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, he again, He blessed me with a lot of gifts. You know. Ability to, to be creative, be a communicator, and to be able to, to, to have a vision on property, and construction, and housing, and to put uh, just a lot of opportunity in front of me. And I think that uh, 
it really is just a joy to have had that experience because I think it makes living now after that just taste so much better. It's kind of like if you can drink an unsweetened tea all your life and get sweet tea. <laughs> <laughs> what a great analogy. Yeah. And and you got back into the world you were in with uh, building and developing your son. I think you told me you're you're working with him. What yeah. a great thing uh, to be able to share your knowledge with your son and, 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 and keep that as a legacy. I, I love that. Yeah. You know, I, uh, when I got out, I wasn't too concerned about, about again, finding a job or even being able to earn income. Uh, I had lots of, I had lots of contacts in the industry, lots of friends, lots of people that, that knew me. And uh, they they knew that they would help me any way they could uh, as soon as they had the opportunity. So I just got right back into to where I started construction, and I love it. Love building things my hands. Just kind of kept working my way up. Now, uh, when you when you get labeled a felon, uh, it makes it difficult to uh, talk to investors, talk to mm-hmm. banks, talk to suppliers. Uh, so you got to lean back on the people that you had had contact with before, people that really knew you. And uh, and then you just got to start new relationships inside, and that has been a challenge. But it's uh, you know I've reestablished banking relationships, reestablished investor relationships. So. And, and, you know, Ron, I think that's a good point, too, because you are labeled uh, as an ex-felon. You, that's a life sentence that you'll carry with you. And, and you just have to be super tenacious to, um, to, to really step through that. And, and uh, knowing when you walk into a room that that's your, your, they can Google you, uh, somebody's got a story or whatever, you've got to face that head on and, and just – say, yeah, that's me, but here's what I can do for you. Here's what I can do as a guy. And, and I think, um, that's the difference because it's really hard. You know, we've talked about this several times on the podcast, you know, when you go to interview for a job, you got to check a box that you're an ex-felon, or if you want to live somewhere, you're an ex-felon. If you want to get credit, you're an ex-felon. Knowing that, then you've got to come up with a new strategy and, you know, either you're, you've got people that are going to help you that understand you that have relationships with you, or like you said, you create new relationships and they believe in you, but it's, it's, um, you need an opportunity. And, um, you know, us guys out here that, that have been through this, we're looking for real opportunities so we can be good people to work with for sure. You know, I think you hit it. I mean, if you, uh, Having that label, uh, for some people, it just it shuts the door. Yeah. Uh, I would say for most people, it shuts the door. Yeah. But I have learned, and, and this is I've learned in just uh, in personal relationships. I've got a wonderful uh, woman that's in my life now. From the first. What's that woman's her, name, Ron? Her name is Lisa. Yeah, I met Lisa. <laughs> Yeah, you really started. Nice lady. So, our second date, I told her right off the bat, look, this is what happened. Google my name, you'll see this. I said, uh, I just want you to know that. You make a decision, you make a judgment about me. Yeah. But the point I'm making is, you just got to come out to people and talk about it. Exactly. Don't you feel better leading with it than wondering if? For sure. 
Yeah. And I think in some companies, people say, really? Yeah. And then when you start telling them the story, yeah. when you start telling them about how you thought it was this, but it's really this, yeah. they start kind of questioning too. Right. And uh, because um, what I have learned is if it's going to be, if being a felon or having that in your background is going to be uh, something that someone's going to make a decision upon, it's yeah. better to know right up front. Right, right. For both parties. No hard feelings. Just move on. Exactly. And I think that in, in business relationships and in for sure in personal relationships because, you know, we all desire just to be understood for who we are. Yep. Authentically. Yeah. And that means our experiences, yeah. good, bad, or indifferent. And I'm, so it, it's been a challenge, and I think that's one one reason why I've kind of taken a course of action that I have in my life with my business is I, I lean back on people that knew me. I've got a banker that I work with that has known me for 30 years mm-hmm. who is back with me doing business with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knows you. He knows who he you knows are. Me. Right. No, he knows me. He knows me. He knows me. He knows the things that the government says on a stand. Right. That's not you. Right. So. Well, anyway, I I think, I mean, you've you've shared so much, and I I appreciate you just being so open about mm -hmm. all this because I think you know. Everybody has things that they deal with. They don't have to go to prison. They just have things they deal with. I think you've shared a lot of different things that of how you can cope and get through and, and you know, dealing with something that you didn't think was going to happen and then you had to deal with what happened. But if you were going to part anything to the listeners that I haven't asked you, would there be anything that you would want to share about how life is for you now and what you see? can't relive yesterday love that you uh, you can plan for tomorrow but tomorrow's not here you have to appreciate where you are today and what prison probably taught me more than anything that the most important things in our life are not the things or what we do but it's those people in our lives and it's how we make those people feel. And uh, it doesn't matter if you're successful, if you've got, uh, you drive fancy cars, you live in a big house, or fly all over the world. Uh, if you don't have people in your life that love you, that you love authentically as your real self, then there's not real joy in your life. That's for me. Man. And I think that... Uh, I love that, Ron. In fact, I love that so much. I think we should end this on that. That was good stuff. Good stuff, my man. So everybody, Ron, thank you so much for uh, doing this podcast. It means a lot to me because I've always respected you and admired how you handled yourself. Um, For those listening, uh, I still have my book out there if you want to buy it. Uh, It's Nightmare Success. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. uh, hopefully you can, uh, it's easy. Just check it out. You can go to my website, brentcassie.com and you can order it from there. Ron, thank you so much, man. Brent, thank you. Hey, 
thank you for what you're doing. I love what you're doing. You're getting the word out. God bless you, and uh, all the best. I appreciate it. Everybody, nightmare success in and out. Thank you for being here.